hppodcraft.com. I had always found the organ playing at St. Barnaby highly interesting. Learned and scientific it was, too much so for my small knowledge, but expressing a vivid, if cold, intelligence. Moreover, it possessed the French quality of taste. Taste reigned supreme, self-controlled, dignified, and reticent. Today, however, from the first chord, I had felt a change for the worse, a sinister change. During Vespers, it had been chiefly the chancel organ which supported the beautiful choir, but now and again, from the west gallery where the great organ stands, a heavy hand had struck across the church at the serene peace of those clear voices. It was something more than harsh and dissonant, and it betrayed no lack of skill. As it recurred again and again, it set me thinking of what my architect's books say about the custom in early times to consecrate the choir as soon as it was built, and that the nave, being finished sometimes half a century later, often did not get any blessing at all. I wondered idly if that had been the case at St. Barnaby, and whether something not usually supposed to be at home in a Christian church might have entered undetected and taken possession of the West Gallery. I had read of such things happening, too, but not in works on architecture. Those were a couple of paragraphs about demonic gentrification pulled from the opening of In the Court of the Dragon, a story by Robert W. Chambers from his 1895 collection The King in Yellow. And we're going to talk about this story today on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at HPPodcraft.com and, of course, Patreon. And today, we are joined by legendary game designer Robin D. Laws. I'm uh, very happy to be here. And what apter thing to talk about than a story by Robert W. Chambers, because my uh, role-playing game, the Yellow King role-playing game, is in retail. So you'll be able to find it at pelgrainpress.com or at a superior game retailer near you. I was a backer on the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, and it is delightful physically and mentally. Those are the two ways, by the way, that you can be harmed in the Yellow <laughs> King game, physically and mentally. So <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> As we were about to to discuss for the rest of this podcast, the works of Robert W. Chambers are basically it's four slim stories that create together this sort of mythos of interconnected stories, which is an innovative thing when he's doing that in 1895. This game allows you to enter into his world of reality horror. It occurs in four different time frames or eras or realities even, because in addition to being an adaptation of Chambers. It is an adaptation of my own book of short stories, New Tales of the Yellow Sign, and those are all based in some way on his slim yet suggestive mythology. Well, we're so glad to have a, a King and Yellow expert here as we kick off a whole month on this book. We covered two of the more famous stories before. In fact, those were the first stories we covered after moving on from Lovecraft's work way back. We did uh, The Repair of Reputations, and the yellow sign back in 2012. There is some bio on Chambers in those episodes, although I'm sure more will come out here as we read this. And uh, this month, we'll be getting those older episodes up on our slowly growing YouTube channel, so you can give them a listen again if you want the truly immersive King and Yellow experience. Mm, and, uh, yeah. Of course, part of that immersive experience is our reader for today, Mr. Wyatt S. Gray. Yeah. Uh, he's a comedian, a voiceover artist, and he loves to strangle. <laughs> you can see and hear more of Wyatt at uh, wyattcomedy.com. We'll link out in the show notes. Two of those things are true. <laughs> about Wyatt. The thing about Chambers is, if you have slim bio material on him, 
you have about all there is. There has not yet mm. been a solid scholarly bio on Chambers mm -hmm. to plug the work of a boon companion of mine and the person I host my own weekly podcast with, Kenneth Heitz, yes. who has, with Arc Dream, done the annotated King in Yellow. Some of the things that he's been turning up are discovered for the first time. The weird thing about Chambers is that his current reputation rests on basically these four stories. Mm -hmm. He did write some other horror stories as well, but a, a slim number of them. Most of the other ones are not of great interest, frankly. Yeah. And then he wrote some sort of comedic cryptozoological adventures, which I would submit are terrible. And, <laughs> and he wrote in a lot of different genres. He did occasionally come back to pulpy things. He actually later, and not that long later, won fame as a writer of light romances. And mm. even in The King in Yellow, the book itself is its four horror stories, and then the rest of it is realistic fiction. And some of that sort of prefigures his sort of frothy uh, romances. So he became a best-selling novelist for those. He was sort of the Daniel Steele mm. of the uh, Edwardian yeah. era. And consequently, he's been almost completely forgotten. You can still get his books on Gutenberg, a lot of them. And I suggest that if you think there are undiscovered gems in chambers, many people have that thought and look for them and don't find them. <laughs> <laughs> he was extremely famous and then sort of fell out of awareness. We know comparatively little about him. We uh, know that he uh, went to Paris for a while to study as an artist. Mm -hmm. Ken has turned up one of his paintings. There's one known painting, which is, interestingly, because he slags off the Impressionists in his fiction, looks kind of Impressionist-y. Oh, oh, interesting. Now, it's hard to know whether that's just because it's a sketch, a, a, a painted sketch for a, a bigger piece that would have looked more like the academic style sure. at the uh, School of uh, Fine Arts, the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, which is where, where he went. And we assume that at some point he went to Brittany because some of his other horror stories are set in Brittany yeah. and, and evoke the atmosphere of that, the weirdest of the French provinces. But uh, there's not a whole lot else we know about him. We know he was pals with Charles Gibson, who created the Gibson Girls, who is now much more famous than he is and appears as a fictional character in another one of his horror stories. Mm. Over the years, he sort of faded away. And I think were it not for the fact that Lovecraft cites him in supernatural horror in literature and was somewhat influenced by him and was also working already toward the parallel ideas that we can draw between them, I think that we wouldn't know Chambers today. Mm. And for a long period, we saw Chambers through the lens of not just Lovecraft, who takes some of his universe terms and refers to them in various places in that sort of elusive way of his. But then August Derleth then came, comes along and goes, well, while I'm codifying everything, uh, let's take this this Haster that is referred to vaguely in the, in the Chamber stories uh -huh. and make this a giant worm god who has this thing about him and that thing about him. And then that gets filtered through Call of Cthulhu and out into role-playing. It's uh, through role-playing that the conception of the King in Yellow as a more villainous humanoid figure and one that preys on the mind comes back through the pagan publishing guys, particularly John Tynes, but also Dennis Detwiller start to write about him. And then he filters back through horror fiction. So it's been an interesting history of where these sort of subliminal or underground thoughts have gone through the veins of weird fiction mm. to come out in the era that I think is, is most appropriate for them, which is now. Thank you for mentioning uh, Ken and Robin talk about stuff because we forgot to get to that at the beginning. 
Uh, it's the podcast that you host together with Kenneth Height. And some of the lines in the paragraph that we had read at the beginning of this reminded me of the show. Learned and scientific it is. Too much so for my small knowledge, but expressing a vivid, if cold, intelligence. <laughs> Which I think was just exemplified here. Yes. Kenneth's from Chicago. I'm from Toronto. So he's vivid and I'm cold. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Vivid and Cold, the original title of the yes. show. Well, we're going to jump into the story now, which starts with a quote. O thou who burnst in heart for those who burn, in hell whose fires thyself shall feed in turn, how long be crying, mercy on them, God? Why, who art thou to teach, and he to learn? It's supposedly from Edward Fitzgerald's introduction to the second edition of his translation of Quatrains of the Persian astronomer, poet, Omar Khayyam. Now, legend has it that it was dictated to his mother by Khayyam's ghost in a dream, and she wanted... You can't say that he's the author of it and then say, by the way, he was a ghost when he wrote it. Edward Fitzgerald wrote about this in the introduction, so this is supposedly what his mom said he said. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this checks out. Not made up at all. Okay, well, so help me interpret this quote. I think the story, since we can infer from the action of the story why the epigram was chosen, is one of someone who's made a terrible mistake during the antecedent action. It's uh, something Mm -hmm. he's already done as the story begins, Mm -hmm. which he has read the book, the king in yellow, and therefore plunged himself into hell. The story puts forward the idea that you can make a mistake that is beyond tragic, that is so catastrophic that redemption is no longer possible for you. And and this gets us to the heart then of the thing that connects these four stories, which is the idea that there has been a decadent play that has been written by a person or persons unknown. It's never been performed, but it has been published in uh, London and then suppressed. And the implication is also that there is a French edition as well, that it's a work of decadent, what was called closet drama, something that was written in play format, but never meant to be performed. Mm. It is sort of a weird, decadent story that seems to call on the themes and motifs of the aesthetic movement and the symbolists and the decadence and that is sort of a normal court intrigue story for the first half of the script and then you get to the second part and it becomes an orgy of madness and Mm. it's if you read the second half that you go completely insane and become as this story uh, posits a thrall to the influence of what we think of as its main character, but in fact that Chambers gives you little bits of hints and bits and pieces that you wind up inferring more about it than is actually on the page, even if you combine that between any of the four stories. But I I think the hell of the epigram is the hell of that classic horror theme, forbidden knowledge. Knowing stuff is bad, it'll get you killed. Knowing uh, this particular decadent play will uh, not only attract the attention of the living God, as he describes himself at the end, mm-hmm. the, uh, the king in yellow, but will shatter your sense of, of reality so that what is subjective and objective becomes completely unclear. And what could be a worse hell than that? Mm. By the way, I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to use that closet uh, closet script, closet play, is that what you called it? Uh, closet drama is the term. Closet dramas, that's what all my screenplays are. They're just meant to be read and never, <laughs> never sold or produced. <laughs> That was the intent the whole time. That's why there's seven of them in this drawer. <laughs> right. And they're all people arguing philosophy against a drama, which is the <laughs> That's vast right. majority of a 19th century closet drama. Yeah. A few speedboat chases, but yeah. know, in general, that's what they are. Well, you can argue philosophy on a speedboat. That's, that's well established. <laughs> <laughs> the story begins with this fella in church. He's our unnamed narrator. 
The church is called St. Barnaby, but it's not actually a real church. It's a fictionalized version of a real church, though. The Church of St. Rock, or Rosh, mm. which is the church where Diderot is entombed. So if you go to see the tomb of Diderot, you'll be going to exactly the church described here. Mm. De Sade was married in that church, oh. and uh, Chopin was among its past organists. Well, our narrator's attending church services here, and as we heard in the opening, things are a bit weird in the service. There's a great organ in the West Gallery that keeps blasting out music that's not exactly harsh or dissonant, but that somehow is breaking the serenity of the service. It's slightly unholy sounding, and the narrator wonders if, since that West Gallery was added later to the church and not consecrated, he thinks, maybe some kind of evil presence has taken possession of it. And of course, once an evil presence moves in, it's only a matter of time before there's an evil Whole Foods and an evil microbrewery. <laughs> An evil juice bar. Our narrator hasn't been sleeping well because, as Robin said, he has been reading this play, The King in Yellow, and it has him on edge. So he's in church trying to find some peace of mind, maybe some peace of soul. And uh, you described The King in Yellow pretty well. Now, you haven't actually read this play, have you, Robin? I have not. Those of you who followed the Kickstarter know that producing a lavish, beautiful set of books about a cursed book does invite a curse. Uh, uh, yeah. But if I'd actually read The King in Yellow, uh, that would be a <laughs> an even worse problem. There are other people in this church for the service, and there's a preacher getting ready to do a sermon. The narrator looks around. Nobody seems to notice that this music is annoying. It's just him that's being bothered by it. This is where we get into the reality levels of this story and what makes it, of the four different uh, stories in this little mini-cycle, the one that I think is the most mysterious and trippy because not only is it an unreliable narrator, mm -hmm. as you also get very much in the repair of reputations, but it is a narrator who himself is partially aware that his consciousness has been split and that he is receiving things that are not necessarily there. Mm -hmm. But what his precise state of consciousness is, is in question throughout the story. So is he right. dreaming? Is he having a waking dream with microsleep? Is he having a hypnagogic experience? Is he in fact seeing through the veil of safe, ordinary reality into the truer and more horrifying reality underneath, the way that Lovecraft characters do. What exactly is the difference between his perception and reality, and where does that come from? Because, of course, you could also posit that the play The King in Yellow is entirely fictional and part of his delusion, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. except that there are other characters in the other stories who are also aware of that play, but then right. most of them are unreliable narrators, too. So... <laughs> Is the play changing his perception of reality, or is it in fact changing his objective reality? And and is he perceiving that in an objective or a subjective way? Mm. So it is the, the layeredness of the story that I think makes it memorable. And for me anyway, it is a story that before I talk about it, I always have to go back and review very carefully because there is a dreamlike quality about reading it, uh, the way that it sort of goes in and out between different levels of his experience mm. is one that I think very adeptly conjures the experience of being semi-awake. You know, we've all had moments when we're nodding off during a movie or a TV show or something, and we fall asleep and we start imagining different plot events that are actually happening on the screen, and then you wake up and that story is sort of a, an induced version of that, of, of course, with this sort of hellish and horrific idea that your control of your senses is going away from you. But of course, that's something that 
happens to all of us mm. every night when we sleep. Those of us who dream or dream vividly have the idea that you would suddenly be in a waking dream, uh, as you sometimes are when you begin to, to nod off, is I think the human physical as well as emotional experience that sort of underpins the, uh, the horror and the strangeness of this piece. As the sermon begins, the music stops and the narrator can see the organist slip out the back. He was a slender man and his face was as white as his coat was black. Uh, the narrator is relieved that this guy is leaving. It kind of reminds me, like, Chris, do you remember um, eating at Cafe 50s in West LA? Yes. They used to have this thing. I think you've been there with me when this happened. I would always forget it was going on when I went. But if you went there for brunch on the weekend, sometimes there was a magician. Yes. It <laughs> was going table to table. and You'd be, like, eating your scrambled eggs, and you'd wander up. You want to see some card tricks? Yes. <laughs> you know? And the answer is always no. <laughs> I like magic. But when it's presented to me over some pancakes, it's discordant. Yes. Like this organ player. Yeah. The reason I brought it up is I went there recently and I saw the magician when I was walking in and I had that sense of panic for a oh, second. Oh, no. But, then, but he was packing up. He'd already done his magic for the day. Yeah. So he was leaving. And I felt a similar sense of relief <laughs> to the protagonist in this story when the organist leaves. That passage is also, of course, uh, suggestive to the contemporary horror fan because he's Slender Man. It oh, says it right in the story. Right there. It does. You're right. Yeah. I'm not going to say that Eric Knudsen consciously picked up that huh? this particular story and decided to fuse those two words together to create his mysterious horror figure who seems a lot like the King in Yellow in certain ways and... Mm -hmm also has created at least one terrible incursion into reality mm -hmm. with people whose objective reality became subjective. That's true. There is kind of a relationship between the Slender Man stuff and this King of Yellow stuff, huh? Absolutely. And it's right there on the page. But was it there all along or has it been retroactively inserted into our oh, country? No. <laughs> no. The, the priest continues <laughs> his sermon and the narrator's eye wow. is drawn to the side and he sees the organist again, that white face all in black, moving up the side from the back. And he's going out of the church the exact same way he did before. So he wonders, how is it possible that he could slip around so quickly to the back of the church? It's impossible. Yeah, there's no way he should have been able to do this. Unless he's experiencing missing time, unless he's falling into micro-sleep and waking up and not knowing right. that he right. is doing it, which would be the realistic explanation, or has time itself been shattered? I was curious, when this weird time loop happens, the preacher is in the middle of saying, one truth the human soul finds hardest of all to learn, that it has nothing to fear. It can never be made to see that nothing can really harm it. That's the counterpoint to the theme of you can make a mistake, you can know something, you can read the king in yellow. That one act, that act of sort of aesthetic hubris or desire for knowledge is enough to forever damn you, even before you die and go to hell. And both that idea and what the priest is saying are both contrary to Catholic doctrine and most uh, Christian doctrine that says, that, well, you've always got a chance of redemption. The action of the story suggests, nope, there are some things you can do, like reading a play that is uh, so obscene and terrifying that you are damned forever. Whereas the priest is saying that Oh, you can't really hurt the soul. Don't worry about that. And the lesson of the story is, yes, you can harm the soul. And this particular character's uh, soul has been indelibly harmed because mm. he attracted the attention of the king in yellow. The figure with the white face, if you look at the other stories where the idea with the, the end of the first act of King in Yellow is that Stranger shows up wearing a pallid mask. Mm -hmm. Camilla and Casilda, who we often think of as the princesses, the daughters of the King in Yellow, mm -hmm. though that is an inference, that's not a thing on the page, ask that the stranger take off his mask and they uh, try to take off the mask or he tries to take off the mask and then famously the selection of the play, the characters cry out, no mask, no mask. It's 
not a mask. It's the it's the horrible face of the figure who we think might be the king in yellow. Again, inferring from the little bits of yeah. suggestive evidence that uh, Chambers uh, gives us. So the organist, therefore, is visually cognate with the king in yellow because he has a white, a pallid face. And so that makes him an avatar of the king in yellow and therefore the figure that is returning again and again to haunt the lead character as he has this desperate reverie of uh, sleep deprivation Mm. in the church. As he leaves the second time, this organist turns and he looks at the narrator directly in the face. He turned and sent across the church straight into my eyes a look of hate, intense and deadly. I have never seen any other like it. Would to God I might never see it again. So then he pops through the same door again. The narrator wonders what he's done to be so hated by this man. This would be like if that magician was just on break and not leaving for the day, you know? I was so happy, and then he wandered up shuffling some cards. Oh, why does this guy hate me so much? (laughs) But just not an ordinary look of card trickery, but an indescribably hateful look of card trickery. (laughs) Yeah, and that's something that you can do on the prose page is you can describe a look of hate like I've never seen before, which is, first of all, a subjective emotional uh, reaction. But imagine if you're writing a screenplay and you have to give that to an actor to play. Right. A look of hate that has never been seen before. It's like, well, I only got so many facial muscles like everybody else's. But in this realm of subjective horror, there can be a, an expression that is describable yet indescribable mm. on the page. It's a super dirty look. (laughs) The narrator begins to think, wait, there's another exit. Perhaps he just went outside and then forgot something, you know, like lip balm. And then he came back through the church to get it. And that's it. And he thinks, I'm just a nervous fool. He probably didn't give me that super dirty look either. And then he starts to feel very mocking and irreverent himself, a mood he's never been in, at least in the church. He just suddenly wants to make fun of everything. Is that the satanic influence of the the stranger on him? I think that's his sanity coming back, right? The idea that, oh no, I'm just having, this is just a weird feeling and I'm being Uh. an idiot. And when something terrible is happening, you try to talk yourself out of it. You Mm. go, well, this uh, organist, he must have just forgotten something and come back. The narrator has a hard time and he just can't focus (laughs) on the sermon. He has to get out of there. He comes out of the church and he sees these bright flowers, including some yellow flowers. This is sort of some contrast, I believe, here in in talking about the yellow being this bright color. In Height's annotated King in Yellow book, he brings up Goethe's theory of colors about the dual nature of yellow. And that yellow is very powerful, bright, positive color. But once you just add a little bit of another color to it, it gets muddy and it gets gross. And, And I can tell you, from doing color work myself, that once you start to desaturate yellow, it quickly becomes off and ugly and and gross and easily corruptible. And also he's going out into the sun for a break from the terror. And so he goes out into the daylight. There's a moment of experiencing the beauty and splendor of Paris. And this was a particularly splendid time to be in Paris. Mm. But as you suggest, the bright yellow sunlight dims on him suddenly and he realizes that his uh, nightmare has only just begun. Yellow, we've talked about a lot when we've covered these things before. It's both decadence, the golden decadence, and also the color of decay. And I believe it was a very prevalent color in this decade in the 1890s, right? There was the yellow book, the literary journal. Uh, yes, it was the, the color associated with the, the decadence and the symbolists. Here we get into Chambers. Uh, once again, his somewhat fraught and contradictory attitude toward 
all of the modern art movements. And we see this even reflected as the character, as he's listening to the music, he lets you know that he has more conservative tastes in music than what he's hearing and is not into what sounds like uh, this weird modernist dissonant uh, music that is being played in the church. And that Chambers in these stories not only sees uh, symbolism and the aesthetic movement as sources of horror and dismay, but of course traffics in them as well. And that is why these works are uh, remembered today, because the thing that he was afraid of or disliked or thought was horrifying is the thing that he conjured. And so mm. just as he slags the Impressionist, but seems to have been creating Impressionist-inspired work that he is both condemning and engaging in decadence and symbolism as he presents the uh, King in Yellow. This narrator's appreciation of the beauty of the flowers is spoiled by yet another appearance of the organist, but he seems to be on his own mission, and he, he's not focusing on the narrator at all. But the narrator feels that whatever this guy is doing, it has something to do with the narrator's destruction. He quickly loses sight of the organist. He's off on his mission, marching down the street somewhere. Here again, we get to the unreliable narratorness of it, in that, as a writer, Chambers is giving you the impression that the narrator is imposing his fearful reality on just a series of other people mm -hmm. who look vaguely like the organist. Mm -hmm. And this is why they are indifferent to him, because they're not the organist. They're right. just other people that he sees as he goes along. And so you are given both the narrator saying that the figure was following me around, yet also the narrator is unconsciously giving you clues that what he is perceiving is not real. Yeah. Or is it? And as the narrator's wandering around Paris, something changes in him. It says, There began to dawn in me a sense of responsibility for something long forgotten. It began to seem as if I deserved that which he threatened. It reached a long way back, a long, long way back. It had lain dormant all these years. It was there, though, and presently it would rise and confront me. But I would try to escape. So he's attaching this figure now to some feeling of guilt or sin, right? Mm. So there's some other past act that predates his reading of The King in Yellow. And so there's some other reason why he is doomed and deserves this fate, yet it remains vague. It's just a feeling and apprehension, and it's never described what it is that he did. In fact, you would think that if there was something so memorable that it would damn him forever, that he would recall what that was <laughs> yeah, right. and be specific. As this story sets that we're not reading a letter or a journal, there's no indication that this is anything other than his stream of consciousness. And this is a pretty early example of stream of of consciousness writing. And so there's no idea that the narrator is lying to us deliberately because we're just inside his thoughts. He has an apprehension of having done something terribly wrong and we don't know what it is. And we don't know if he even knows what it is. And again, going back to the experience of, of dreaming, I've certainly had dreams where in the dream, I have already done something terrible. Of course. And I'm yeah. trying to oh. somehow make up for that. Yes. And that seems like one of those things. And it's not even necessarily clear to him what the terrible thing that he's done. He just knows that he now deserves to be destroyed by this mysterious figure. He's lost in existential thought at this point, and he wanders into the park and again sees the organist. But this time, the organist is very close to him, and he bumps into the narrator as he passes by. The narrator says, His slender frame felt like iron inside its loose black covering. He showed no signs of haste, nor of fatigue, nor of any human feeling. His whole being expressed one thing, the will and the power to work me evil. It's an 1890s Terminator. <laughs> 
it knows no pain, no fear. It's got an iron frame under go. the garment. So he loses sight of the organist again and is pretty freaked out by this guy. And he just finds himself sitting in a cafe, very weak and tired. And just then a magician approaches. No, no magicians. Well, we don't know if there's been a magician or not because he's had missing time. Oh, right. That's right. It's, it suddenly jumps ahead oh. as it does in dreams and or UFO abductions. Yeah. <laughs> and there he is all of a sudden. And what has happened during this uh, missing time is consciousness has been away from us and we don't know what happened. Suddenly he's there. That's a symptom of an actual fugue state, which is a thing that can uh, happen to us in real life, mm -hmm. where you lose conscious volition, but you're out there doing stuff, and suddenly you just have short-term amnesia. And suddenly, uh, you're in a cafe in Paris. And if you're going to suddenly be somewhere, uh, that's a pretty good place to yeah, be in 1895, uh, at any rate. That's kind of a neat aspect of the story, is because I mean, I've missed time, I, especially when you're driving. I think when you're on the road for a long time and you don't realize how long you're, you know, in your head just staring at the road or if you're walking someplace that you just go, oh, wait, how did I get here? I was lost in my mind. And that's what the narrator is. So he could just be doing something that we always do. Or like you said, he could be having these time jumps and it is more dreamlike. But since he's an unreliable narrator, we're not sure. And if you ever want to be terrified even more than you are reading horror stories, look at the studies of how much time drivers spend asleep oh my God. Uh, while driving on the road, because it turns out that quite often they're falling asleep for seconds at a time oh, uh, while behind the wheel of a car. So no. it's sort of a miracle. I've uh, done it. I have too. Uh, that, uh, that any of us get anywhere in cars at night. Yeah. He decides that he needs to make the long trek back to his home, which is in the Court of the Dragon, where he lives. And uh, this is the real place, and I got a picture of it I found online, and it's pretty cool. It's kind of, sort of a cobblestone road, like a very small, narrow road. Doesn't look like a car would fit through there. And then there's kind of a building with a big archway and a balcony, and underneath the balcony is a, is a sculpture of a, of a dragon. And I believe the dragon is still there in Paris. Oh, it is. Although the court is now a private park. But yeah, we'll link out to some photos from the era of the actual court in the show notes. There's a nice page with them. He describes the Street of the Dragon as being home to iron workers, mm -hmm. uh, middle-aged uh, impoverished students like himself. Today, it's all fashionable shops. And it's also true that, you know, the famous occult bookshops in Paris of this era are also now one of them, the most famous of them is now an Apple store. So, uh -huh. <laughs> Yeah. At the time period of the story, there's shops and residences, but the court is closed off by iron gates in the evening, I believe. Mm -hmm. One has to enter this area through separate doors that only the residents know. Yeah, he says, when I first came here to live, I was young and not alone. Yeah, he's middle-aged now, so there's a lot of regret in that statement. There's a tragic backstory of some. Well, yeah, you know, he said he wasn't yeah. alone, so I obviously had somebody with him. Could be a yeah. love or perhaps a, a dear friend, but they are no longer there. On his journey home, he had expected to see the organist, but he didn't. And when he gets to the Court of the Dragon, his home, he sees there's some kids playing, people talking to one another. Yay, he's home, he's safe, happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> but we get a glimpse of the court. You know, there's some people having a dance off on the corner. There's some girls <laughs> jump roping. There's a fashionable woman walking a lion on a leash. You know, you just really get a sense of the place. <laughs> None of those things are true. The stairs Pop up. song <laughs> playing over the montage. <laughs> the stairs up to his apartment are down a side passage. And as he turns, he can see the organist over his shoulder following him. This Rat. Man moves directly towards him, but he's not running and he's also not walking. He retreats backwards down the court, but the eye of the organist tells him that there is no escape. It seemed ages while we were going. I retreating, he advancing, down the court in perfect silence. 
but at last I felt the shadow of the archway, and the next step brought me within it. I had meant to turn here and spring through into the street, but the shadow was not that of an archway. It was that of a vault. The great doors of the Rue de Dragon were closed. I felt this by the blackness which surrounded me, and at the same instant I read it in his face. How his face gleamed in the darkness, drawing swiftly nearer. The deep vaults, the huge closed door, their cold iron clamps were all on his side. The thing which he had threatened had arrived. It gathered and bore down on me from the fathomless shadows. The point from which it would strike was his infernal eyes. Hopeless, I set my back against the barred doors and defied him. He is being menaced and can't escape. But just then, he hears the scraping of the chairs on the stone floor of the church and the rustle of the congregation, and he realizes he's back in there with everybody. It was just a dream. He's fine. <laughs> Happy ending. Everything's <laughs> great. <laughs> you can see how the rug is laid out, and the rug is laid out, and then the rug is pulled away, and yes. the rug is pulled away. And that is sort of the, the classic rhythm of all narrative, but also particularly of horror narrative, mm -hmm. is that if every beat is bleak and terrible, that you grow inured to it. But if there are little micro recoveries, as yes. there are throughout this story, whether he's convincing himself that everything is fine and he's just being a silly Billy, or in this case, he thinks he's escaped and then he hasn't, then he thinks he's safe home, and then he isn't, then he thinks he's back in the church, and well, then what happens? Back in the church, he looks up and he sees the man again. So you get that little moment of safety, and then boom, the organist is still there, passing along the gallery to his place. It says, only his side I saw the thin bent arm in its black covering looked like one of those devilish, nameless instruments which lie in the disused torture chambers of medieval castles. The narrator thinks, I've escaped him, or have I? For I knew him now. Death, and the awful abode of lost souls. Whether my weakness long ago had sent him, they had changed him for every other eye, but not for mine. I had recognized him almost from the first. I had never doubted what he was come to do. And now I knew while my body sat safe in the cheerful little church, he had been hunting my soul in the court of the dragon. I crept to the door. The organ broke out overhead with a blare. A dazzling light filled the church, blotting the altar from my eyes. The people faded away, the arches, the vaulted roof vanished. I raised my seared eyes to the fathomless glare, and I saw the black stars hanging in the heavens, and the wet winds from the lake of holly chilled my face. And now, far away, over leagues of tossing cloud waves, I saw the moon dripping with spray and beyond, the towers of Carcosa rose behind the moon. Death and the awful abode of lost souls, whether my weakness long ago had sent him, had changed him for every other eye but mine. And now I heard his voice, rising, swelling, thundering through the flaring light, and as I fell, his radiance increasing, 
increasing, poured over me in waves of flame. Then I sank into the depths, and I heard the king in yellow whispering to my soul, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So here you have the suggestion that there is a, an evil god, a living god that is a villain, a god of immense power. And of course, this is something that will return in Lovecraft. Mm. Lovecraft already was playing with that idea before he was introduced uh, to Chambers, I think, by Robert E. Howard. I think could be wrong on that. In that paragraph leading up to that revelation, you get a bunch of the images that recur in the Yellow King stories that form the sort of incantatory images that you invoke when you're trying to tell a story in this vein using his mythos. Uh, black stars hanging in the heavens. Mm -hmm. Sometimes elsewhere it's described as black stars against a white sky. Mm -hmm. Mentions the Lake of Hali, which is this terrible black lake in the land of Carcosa. In this case, there's uh, tossing cloud waves on the lake. It mentions the Towers of Carcosa, another image, Carcosa being the place that the King in Yellow uh, rules over and comes from and where the play is set. You've got all these little touch points that if you're writing a story in this vein, you can draw on in order to situate people in the world of Chambers' reality horror and allude to what he himself only really alludes to. And this, uh, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's actually also a, a passage from the Bible from Hebrews 10.31 in a passage dealing with punishment for sin. He's sort of taking that Bible quote and repurposing it for this deity. Right. Yes, right? yes. This is an even more unforgiving deity than the Old Testament God because <laughs> there's no coming back. There's a weird, decadent, obscene play associated with him. So in a way, the play is sort of, it's an anti-Bible where you look to the Bible for understanding and apprehension of the holy, you read the king in yellow to have your understanding obliterated and to give yourself over to the unholy. Which is what I go to church for. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the story. I had not read this one before. I didn't know that this was going to go the way that it went. I thought most of the other stories in the collection were not so much associated with the play. So this was a pleasant surprise, actually. Yeah, I've just recently come across this again when I reread INJ Colbard's adaptation of The King in Yellow, the graphic novel that he did. Of the four stories, it is the one that is more in the older horror style of the vignette story. It's just essentially one scene with a through line. Despite the missing time, there's sort, there's sort of unity of time and, and space, and he moves from one location to another, and then it turns out he's not. And it's less of a fully plotted story than Repair of Reputations or The Mask or even the slimmest of the other ones, The Yellow Sign. But this is very much like Bierce and Maupassant, where it's a brief mood piece, and then there's a twist. It's a better twist than the person I was talking to turned out to be a ghost all along. Which, yeah. <laughs> uh, Bierce uses, and then in his other less interesting horror stories, Chambers also uh, uses. So this sort of reflects a transition between that older, slimmer form of horror to the more fully plotted out, traditionally structured uh, short story. Hmm. I think now that we've explored all of its various levels of reality and there's a guy coming toward me with this weird iron-like hook hand, I think it's time for us to, uh, to wrap oh, this up. No. Oh, man. Oh, no. <laughs> we never should have read this. Well, thanks for uh, uh, coming on the show, Robin. We really appreciate you lending your expertise to our podcast, which is 
usually missing it. And you're most welcome. And I'm sure that the curse that uh, attains to anyone who publishes or uh, discusses The King in Yellow, that it won't affect people who listen to podcasts, because what sorts of bad things can happen to you while you're out in the world with earbuds in. Exactly. You know what? I actually would like to name a few people who are not going to be affected by this curse. <laughs> These are some of our patrons who are in no danger whatsoever. And I'd like to thank them right now. And the first one I'd like to thank is Mark Andrews. I'd like to thank John F. Rockert. I'd like to thank Zoopers. <laughs> Thanks, Zoopers. <laughs> ben Orvid, thank you so much. Thank you, Jesse Young. I'd like to thank Justin Doyle. I'd like to thank Dancing Burrito. I'd like to thank Philip Berry. I'd like to thank Christopher Knox for being a patron. Lastly, I'd like to thank Anthony J. Giassi. Thank you so much. And of course, we'd like to thank our wonderful reader this week, Wyatt S. Gray. I believe he will be joining us for our story next week as well. Thank you so much, Wyatt. Remember to visit him at wyattcomedy.com. And again, what's the name of the role-playing game, Robin? It is the Yellow King role-playing game from Pelgrain Press. Please, everybody, go check that out. Thanks again, Robin, for being a guest on this show. And that's all we've got for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Robin D. Laws. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. <laughs> At hppodcraft.com and Patreon. hppodcraft.com. Ah!